Support for this podcast comes from Microsoft Teams. Now there are more ways to be a team with Microsoft Teams. Bring everyone together in a new virtual room, collaborate live, building ideas on the same page, and see more of your team on screen at once. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash Teams. Support for this podcast comes from Wild Turkey Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey. Let's tune in to their one-on-one with Jamal, a real bartender from Old Fourth Ward in Atlanta. I really get into the backstory of whatever I'm pouring. Out of respect, there are literally years of experience behind these bottles. Wild Turkey, same recipe since 1942. If you want a true classic, this is what you want to order. Wild Turkey. Wild Turkey Distilling Company, Lawrenceburg, Kentucky. Copyright 2020, Campari, American, New York, New York. Never compromise, drink responsibly. Fellow knowledge seekers, I hope you've had a chance to check out the Waterline podcast on iTunes and your Android app. And if you checked it out, please give it a good rating. It's a wonderful podcast. Water is one of the biggest driving forces of life on Earth. It's been incredibly influential in human history from the time we were hunter-gatherers looking for fresh sources of water to the uh, uh, agricultural revolution and building bigger and bigger cities eventually having plumbing uh, the way that it changed sanitation uh, irrigation and what is the what's the future of water are we gonna have enough of this stuff how can we make more clean fresh water i just listened to a very interesting episode alchemy turning milk into water sustainable water management this episode is all about this very candid conversation about water coffee industrial practices sustainable value chain and social responsibilities with uh this man carlos uh galli who uh, whose job it is to make sure that the biggest food and beverage company in the world is leading a healthy and sustainable lifestyle. Incredibly important stuff. You guys are into science. You guys are into learning, caring about the world, caring about our future. This podcast is for you. Check out the Waterline podcast on iTunes and your Android app. What a fantastic episode I have for you guys today. This one, really, I I walked away just thinking about how, what a complex and fascinating world we live in and how much knowledge there is out there uh, to obtain. I mean, I'm someone who tours around with a show about psychedelics. I've talked with a million different um, psychedelic users. I have plenty of drug experience of my own. I've had uh, I've had past episodes with guests on who are researchers and advocates, and and I uh, I probably know more about drugs than 99% of the population at least, and I still feel like I know nothing, and I have so much more to learn. I think that's so great. Uh, one of the most wonderful things about life is that not only is there a lot that we have to learn, but uh, there's so much that we get to learn, and I think that's terrific. I'm so happy that I am in this position that I get to do this, and I'm so happy that I get to bring you guys along, and I have so many dedicated, wonderful listeners like yourselves. Enjoy today's episode. 
Welcome to the Here We Are podcast, everybody. I am in Des Moines, Iowa. I'm going to be talking with Associate Professor in the Law, Politics, and Society program at Drake University, and he's author of Policing Meth. Will Garriott is joining me. Thank you, Will, for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Um, so you're actually an anthropologist. Um, I am. By uh, That's your training. And can you tell people um, just a... A, a little bit of a brief summary of, of your work and how you got into this before we get into um, some of the specifics and and about um, about your book and I we're going to be talking a little bit about um, uh, about addiction in rural communities today and that sort of thing so could you could you just talk a little bit about how you got into this in the first place sure uh, so it was kind of an unexpected turn in my own research and intellectual development. I started graduate school really interested in questions of religion and religiosity. And I was also interested in doing research in rural U.S. in the Appalachian region specifically. So when I entered graduate school, both master's and doctoral level, I was looking to investigate forms of religiosity in the Appalachian region. So wh wh why? Why? Why that? Why that area? Are you from? I I'm from Kentucky originally. Okay. Uh, not the Appalachian part of Kentucky. So I'm from Central Kentucky. Um, but I did have some connections to that part of the world. I um, see. And so, in a way, there is a degree of familiarity already there, but also an interest in exploring that part of the world more. Also, at the time, there were interesting things happening. In the spread of charismatic and Pentecostal forms of Christianity, some of which could trace their roots back to um, what at one time were small small congregations in the Appalachian region. So I was also interested in some of that religious development and spread. And so I think I was, I was interested in just exploring those worlds more. And so in the process of doing kind of background preliminary research on those issues, I started to get wind of things that were happening around issues of drugs, um, substance abuse, those kinds of things. And so, you know, a lot of that was related to pain medication. And so there are stories that would show up in these newspapers, so like local papers in small towns, talking about someone who'd walked into a pharmacy with a hunting rifle and told the pharmacist to give them all the pills they had back behind the counter. And so these initially were kind of news of the weird things that cropped up, but then you start seeing more and more stories like that. And this is the early 2000s, just to give some context. Um, not long after that, I ended up speaking with some activists in uh, eastern Kentucky, and they really articulated the impact that prescription drugs were having on their communities um, at all levels. So high levels of addiction um, that was in turn leading to problems in, in with individuals, with families. It was also entering into politics and other things like that. And, and there are these kind of stories, rumors of, of people even in law enforcement and whatnot being somehow connected to the drug trade and these really nefarious ways. So 
when I noticed all of that was going on, it was the kind of thing, and particularly once I had someone from one of these communities tell me, you know, this is the, the biggest issue we have in our community right now, and we really are looking to get some help, just at, at least understanding what's going on here. So that's what got me interested in issues of drugs, um, and particularly drugs in that part of the world. And then by the time I got ready to do my uh, year of ethnographic fieldwork as part of my doctoral, doctoral work, um, at that point, methamphetamine had really entered into many of these communities and had almost overtaken a lot of the prescription pill concern as, as, as at least presenting as the most serious issue. Uh, at the same time, um, kind of local production of meth through meth labs was really spiking uh, across the country, including in West Virginia, where I ended up doing my research. And so uh, this was about 2006. Then I went and did a year of ethnographic fieldwork, which in anthropology means that you go and you live in a community, usually for for approximately a year, and and to and the you extent get yourself addicted yeah. to math, and you get <laughs> well, that's always that's always tricky, um, and yeah, I, I, I'm kidding, of course. Yeah, but you do want to try to be a part of the community to the extent that you can, and and when you're researching things like drugs, that can be a little tricky, right? And, Particularly the the project that I had, because I was interested not just in the experiences of people who were using meth or making meth, but the broader community as a whole. So how does a community, once they feel besieged by this drug, start reacting to that problem in the local context? So I was in an interesting situation where one day I'd be interviewing someone who had been released from prison not that long ago because they were one of the biggest drug dealers in the area. You know, so that's that's... Monday, Thursday, I'm interviewing the um, sheriff's deputy who arrested them. Um, and on top of that, because this is a small town, they went to high school together. So there are interesting dynamics at that level. Um, so I was interested just in, in kind of, and what I ended mm. up doing was talking to people um, kind of across the board. So people who were actually using, selling, making, or, or had done so formally, um, but then the judges that had sentenced them the police officers who had arrested them, their neighbors, just general people in the community who are really trying to figure out what's going on here and what does this say about our community at this particular time. You know, you could have made this a documentary, right? Like you sure. could have easily just had a film crew and, and... if you know, and if I'd had that skill set, maybe maybe <laughs> I would have, but that. Uh, for better or worse, was not something I was prepared to do at the time. Yeah, well, that's such an interesting experience, and and I and listeners have heard a little bit about this before. Mm -hmm. I I talked with this organization, Central City Concern in in Portland, that does great work work uh, getting kind of uh, homeless people or or people borderline homeless a little assistance with finding finding jobs and yep. uh, maybe not getting evicted or finding yep um, shelter for them and and um, in the founder, um, the, w one of the big things that struck me was was the founder who had been not not the founder, the the I think he was the CEO. And my memory always fails me, but he had been there for twenty five, thirty years, something like that. And, and he said when he started that the homeless problem was one nothing compared to what it is today, but but it was it was an issue of you'd have these kind of winos or whatever these mm -hmm. the you know alcoholics that kind of drank themselves out of 
out of jobs and have family problems or whatever and and um and then in i believe he said kind of the early 90s was when he first started seeing the turn and it was it was because of pills it was when he first started that that was when it seemed like some of these prescriptions started uh, being handed out a lot more frequently, and that's when he started seeing the turn toward uh, heroin addiction, yep. causing a lot of these problems. Yeah, and and I think you know, broadly speaking, that that history is pretty accurate. The '90s were definitely a time when pharmaceuticals started entering everyone's life in the U.S. in a more robust way. Um, I mean, the the current generation that I work with at uh, Drake. I mean, are sometimes referred to as Generation RX. They're seen as as the most medicated generation in history. Many of them have been on 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 some kind of medication or pharmaceutical their entire life. With regards to um, opiates, opioids, pain medication specifically, um, a number of different things happened about that time, um, and it wasn't just the introduction of new pharmaceuticals. So, for instance, the drug OxyContin has gotten a lot of attention in this context as a drug that um, created a lot of problems. Well, the OxyContin was marketed, um, well, let me back up. It was initially approved uh, for treatment of people who had extremely severe intractable pain, so people with, with cancer or severe chronic pain, something like that. Um, and what made OxyContin different was it was marketed, at least, to be um, more difficult to become addicted to because it had this built-in time release mechanism. Um, so it was both convenient and, and um, not addiction-proof, but more resistant to addiction because you could take a pill that had a really high dose of um, the drug and it would just dole it out over, say, 10 hours, something like that. So if you're someone with severe chronic back pain, I mean, this is a miracle drug for you because it allows you to take one pill and be more functional throughout your day. Um, the problem is a couple things happen. Number one, uh, the company that made it started having their pharmaceutical rep push it as a, as a general analgesic, so something that, that doctors could prescribe to anyone who was dealing with pain in any capacity. Again, this idea that, that you have this built-in time release mechanism um, was, was foregrounded in the marketing to say, this isn't gonna cause people real problems as far as addiction because, um, because it has the time release mechanism and, and, and it's gonna be harder for them to, to get hooked. Um, <laughs> have you ever have you ever seen those old ads from like the 1910s or 20s or whatever where I think it was aspirin um, or oh Bayer uh, where where they had because heroin was legal oh, and it yeah. was, it was uh -huh. like a medical thing and so yeah. so you can find all these old like Bayer ads that were just selling it to like yeah. housewives and stuff oh, yeah. just be like hey want to brighten up your day yeah <laughs> and I haven't seen those but yeah I mean that's one of the that's one of the the things that's part of the history of all of these is many of them began as legitimate pharmaceuticals. Well, going back to OxyContin, um, the packages all contained a warning label that said, do not crush. So of course, one of the first things many people did was crush them. Yeah. And what people discovered is when you crush it, the time release mechanism goes away. Yeah. And then you can snort it or, or put it in a solution and even inject it. And all of a sudden you get all of that medication at once. Yeah. And 
so that was at the level of of new pharmaceuticals that was something that was new and people figured that out pretty quickly well, and that started to cause lots of problems the the other problem even so so say so say someone's not even doing this to get high um which i have done by the way i i had i was on uh, pain pills for for some amount of time and when when i was a kid i got my hands on like a couple of these mm-hmm. i don't even know how i think i think like a wisdom teeth or something sure. like that yeah. and and uh um grinded some up and yep. and snorted them because i was a kid that wanted to do every mm-hmm. drug that i could um but um there was it, it, i mean some people if they don't know that they'll be like well i don't need the full one today i'll just take half you know yeah. you know break yeah. it in half and then yeah. all of a sudden that time release oh, goes yeah. away whoa yeah yeah yeah, yeah, and and I mean, what you also had was efforts on the part of this company. That at this point, I'm just kind of talking specifically about OxyContin, but not only to to broaden the market, um, but an effort was made to really change the way that doctors thought about pain. So pain started being treated as a vital sign. They really pushed this idea that pain was undertreated in the U.S. context and that there were all these millions of people living in the U.S. with pain that was untreated. And the problem was that they would go see the doctor and the doctor would never ask them about it. So there really was this culture shift as well that was promoted, at least in part, by folks within the pharmaceutical industry to, to get doctors to, to rethink how they engage with patients around pain. There is now pushback against that in the wake of what many in the medical mu- community see as overprescription of pain medication, um, almost to the extent that some see it as an overcorrection. That that we're now we're now again so concerned that people are going to become addicted that we'd rather have them suffer with pain than risk the possibility of them being exposed to a pharmaceutical that on which they could become dependent. Um, so th- there's always this kind of back and forth, but yeah, so that was another thing that happened in kind of the 90s and early 2000s was a, a broad um, cultural shift in the way that pain was thought about and treated, and it, it just so happened that there were new pharmaceuticals in place to, to work in that context. Well, I'm, I'm curious, you may not have an answer for me, but um, I, just thinking about the timing of that was, that that was kind of slightly right after the the big war on drugs um push in the 80s uh, it, it, do you do you think that there is any correlation there between um between this crackdown on on you know wh- whatever whatever street drug maybe people were already kind of self-medicating and then once once that was cracked down on um and and, and the fact that that it was like we're taking care of all the bad drugs, but then the doctors are all of a sudden like, here's, here's this thing that's okay to do. Yeah. It, do you think that there was any correlation with that? I, I mean, it's probably I mean, impossible it's, to say. It's, it's difficult to say just because there's so many different factors involved, but I think it is something that many people have drawn attention to that um, we have through kind of the latter quarter of the 20th century, this this simultaneous movement of, on the one hand, making illegal drugs a really important kind of national concern, something around which a lot of policy work uh, takes place and a lot of kind of political agendas more broadly. I mean, everything from our foreign policy to healthcare uh, gets 
kind of framed and articulated around a concern with illegal drugs. So we have that happening on the one side. Then on the other side, we have what you just mentioned. We have this uptick in the number of pharmaceuticals that um, Americans in general are taking. And, and again, the 90s are a key moment in that. Um, the relationship between those, I mean, it's complicated and it's, right. and it's different depending on which drug you're talking about. Um, and so, you know, you look at something like, I mean, heroin and Oxycontin, they're very similar drugs. One is held up as a miracle drug. One is, is seen as very dangerous. I mean, now I think we're in a different place just because we've had this decade or more experience with these high dosage pain medications. So people are now a little more wary of them. But there's always been this dynamic, I think, in the U.S. Um, as far as drug policy goes, is saying, you know, some drugs are are good, not great. Others are terrible, and the line between well, those is sometimes blurry and shifts. So you talk about even something like methamphetamine, amphetamine. Mm -hmm. um, you look at the '60s. I mean, various forms of amphetamine were were very easy to obtain, and in fact. Amphetamine is the original mother's little helper, um, and yeah. it, it's tied up and was even marketed towards the kind of iconic mid-century housewife as the as the person who had to kind of take care of all these things, still be uh, presentable, <laughs> yeah, energetic, yeah, right. happy to the husband who's coming home. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, now we don't oh, really man. think about it in those terms. I'm but I mean, thinking of my grandma doing math yeah. back then. <laughs> Well, it's, I mean, it wasn't necessarily meth per right, se, right, but it right, definitely right, was right. amphetamine. And it's been, I mean, it's been marketed in various forms as a diet drug. Uh, I mean, trucker speed, right. you know, all of these things. So it's, it's had a life in the legitimate drug economy for quite some time, but then it also has this other life in the, in the illegitimate drug economy. Yeah. And, and I mean, even, even amongst illegal drugs, kind of, kind of the misinformation out there between say say the the huge differentiation in most people's mind between crack and cocaine sure like yeah. cocaine uh, cocaine being like well yeah who doesn't you know once a couple times a year it's new year's you want to keep the party going or whatever yeah. whereas the idea of doing crack on the yep. other hand is like that that is no way yep. that's what crazy people and and chemically it's I mean, crack is cocaine with uh, and baked, just baked up a little. With I don't know how to make cocaine. I think you just use baking powder and yep. and and that's basically you're just smoking it as opposed to snorting it. Yeah, it's it's it essentially was um, a way to make it easier to transport and consume. I mean, that there are differences between smoking crack right, versus right. snorting cocaine, but still. At right. the end of the day, it's the exact same substance. I mean, you can't have crack without cocaine. Cocaine is the is the active ingredient. But yeah, there there still is this perception, which our laws reflect even now, that crack is is somehow worse at a at a kind of neurophysiological level, and and that's just not accurate. And then and then not knowing the big differences out there, which is you take like uh, something like marijuana, where you have THC. Mm -hmm. And you have CBD, and right. CBD is is barely psychoactive. Yep. And and whereas THC is mostly psychoactive, yep. and and uh, and most uh, you can take uh, even weed smokers, but uh, many of them I'm sure don't 
know about this. I, sure. I didn't know about CBD until uh, I was in California and yep. had a card and all, all yep. this. And, and, you know, these are like uh, liberal, educated people that listen to NPR <laughs> and, and whatever else that, that wouldn't yep. know the difference in, sure. in these things. And and I think that's I think that's the real harm with um, with pain pill. When I you know I have uh, my my grandparents that are getting much older and a grandpa with all sorts of hip and different various medical problems and, and tremadol and all all sorts of stuff and 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 uh, it's it's something that I think a lot about how how even even the real issue with one of the many issues with with things like these pain pills that are being prescribed by doctors is is you can you can take people that are pillars of the community you know these church going people that are you know very morally uh, it, you know consider themselves kind of do gooders and all all this and and would never think of committing a crime or being one of these like junkies on the street or whatever but they will take a pain pill and yep. addiction is a thing that you don't necessarily get to choose right. uh, you know yep. how, how your neurons are going to yep. respond and how fast addiction is going to and sometimes the most intelligent people get addicted to things the fact i mean we've talked about on the program before addiction is is really just learning mm -hmm. um and neurologically it's yep. it's there's difference between learning math and uh, and learn or learning to exercise and learning that this drug provides this reward there's yeah. there's very little i mean they're still kind of trying to tease apart what the difference is there and and so i i think that it's i mean uh that that's mo most people that would never dream of doing an illegal drug are definitely open to doing something that a doctor will give them Sure, sure. And I think that's one of the things that comes up in many of the histories of addiction, people that I've encountered. So, for instance, when I met that activist in eastern Kentucky uh, 13 years ago, one of the people I met was someone who worked with, with his organization, and her husband had actually died as a result of, well, basically just things related to the addiction he developed to prescription pain pills. His history was that he'd been a football player, he had a football injury, he exacerbated that injury at work. He was prescribed this pill, taking it, he became addicted to it, yeah. and that addiction then created all these other problems in his life. So, um, you know, so it really begins, I think it's a very similar story to the situation you, you described. I mean, this is someone who is not seeking um, to have even a kind of high experience, yeah. but simply to to deal with pain and as a result of that they ended up developing an addiction and um uh, you you may know just because i talked about it for 15 seconds during my regular act i just mentioned that i broke my feet a while back mm -hmm. and i'm not going to get into it because my listeners my poor listeners have had to hear me go on and on about it but but i just want you to know that i i've had experience with with uh um pain medications and um and they are the tricky thing is is that oxy and stuff is so functional yeah. uh, for i imagine most people but for me especially 
oh man, not yeah. only was I very productive yeah. um, and writing a lot and getting a lot, of, but it was just like, well, everything's going to be great. Yeah. You know, it's just going to be fine. Yeah. It's, it's like, I, it, you could, you could feel miserable. Uh, you could wake up feeling miserable, take one of those, and be like, what was I so worried yep. about? It's yep. going to be great. And that's dangerous. Well, and when your brain starts saying stuff like that to you. When you told that story last night, I immediately thought of a time when I presented some of my research on Oxycontin to a group of graduate students at Princeton University. And in the discussion that followed, one of the, the people who was there shared that he had had surgery on his hand. I mean, kind of outpatient surgery. You know, mm -hmm. you go in, have surgery. Um, and they gave him a prescription for Oxycontin. Um, and he said after he took it, and this is within hours of having had surgery on mm -hmm. his hand. So hours after he took it, um, or, or hours after surgery, he takes this drug. He was calling people just to tell them how good he felt. Yeah, he, I mean that was the only news he was sharing. It had it was just I feel so great, and I, I wanted to tell you about it. Uh, I wanted to do. I did that same thing. Yeah. Well, I would, I would, I would call people and just be like, "Hey, I just haven't talked to you in a while, yeah. and I just you're just a really good friend yep. and important to me." And yep. well, and so so I immediately thought of that, and the rest of the story for him was he continued to take it while he recovered from the surgery. Yeah. He recovers from the surgery. At the end of that, he still has half of his pills left. Yeah. Um, and he was kind of, you know, a little taken aback by the experience about just how good he had felt. So he looked into this drug a little bit and saw that there'd been all these problems. So he threw the rest away. One of the things you see in places like Eastern Kentucky is that um, those extra pills don't necessarily go away. They get stolen. They get taken. They get sold. sold. Um, and particularly because you have Oxycontin and, and similar drugs being treated or being used to treat um, terminal pain-related to terminal illness. So many people are, are using this as their life is ending as a result of cancer. So the chances that they are going to have extra pills, that they're going to have some type of renewal on their prescription, um, at, least, at least 10, 15 years ago when I was looking at this more directly, mm -hmm. the chances of that happening was very high. So, so there are all these different factors in place that um, created, unfortunately, many opportunities for people to start using these drugs recreationally. And in many of these places, you already had a history of abusing drugs like Vicodin or things like that. The difference, though, between Oxycontin and Vicodin is very significant. It's a huge jump up in the amount of active ingredient that you're getting. So people would say, well, I'm used to taking this drug that might have, you know, five milligrams of, a, of, of kind of active uh, uh, pain treating ingredient. Now all of a sudden you have quadruple that or even more. And on top of all that, you may be crushing it and snorting it. So I think it just was this huge step up um, that happened uh, and people were just able to access it because it was just around in a way that it hadn't been. I have a friend that uh, and this is this is modern day. This is right now. I, I mean, I think uh, a year ago, I, I stopped by his house, or maybe it was a little longer. I I had uh, so af after my after my foot surgery, I got a bone infection, but it was misdiagnosed, mm. and I was starting to. So I was off of pills. I didn't yeah. need them, and then once I got the bone infection, I started having pain again. Yeah. Um, and then I was on the road, I was working and, and I didn't, I couldn't 
I couldn't go to the doctor unless I was in California. And I stopped by this friend's house who happened, he had, he had been in the hospital. He was in a horrible car accident and was in the hospital for, I don't know, six months or, or longer than that. And, and he had like a basket mm-hmm. full of pills yeah. and, and renewable as much. If yeah. he wanted to sell pills, yeah. it easily, I mean, this, and this is, this is maybe at the most, say, two years ago. Yep. Uh, and, and someone talking about someone that has a basket yep. of pills yep. that a doctor gave them. Yep. And the challenge is that stories like that have gotten out, and now there's this pushback, right. and doctors are much more leery about prescribing them. Unfortunately, that appears to be one of the contributing factors to the rise in heroin use around the country is that heroin is all of a sudden easier to get and in many times cheaper than some of these pills are. It used to be the reverse. You know, the pills were much, much easier to get. Um, Now, heroin. And one of the things that makes pills attractive is the fact that they are manufactured. And so when you have something that says 10 milligrams or whatever else, chances are quite high that you're actually dealing with 10 milligrams right. you're dealing with heroin you have no idea from right, right, right. from kind of purchase to purchase what it is you're actually dealing with and with any of these drugs the risk of overdose is so high mm-hmm. um so it, it really well i think it's probably good that we are dialing back access to some of these drugs unfortunately what's happening in the wake of that is people are turning to heroin and it's creating all these other problems mm. Yeah, it is a that is it's a difficult situation. Yeah. It's um I mean it, just try, what what do you do? Try you just I guess try to inform people a little better. Are there are there any like kind of programs being uh being set up or, or is there anything coming into place where um maybe some better guidelines for doctors where where they can still get people pain medication for pain and you know if a few pills slip through that people are taking for fun or a little relief or whatever here and there but but you're kind of in a way able to educate people or or wean people yeah. off of this stuff without having because yeah you're right you can't just then you cut yeah. people off and then they're going to uh they are going to go out on the street and i i mean i remember um uh uh i, w- I won't say uh, this person's relationship to me but their their father um uh was this this same sort of story uh church church going pillar of the community you know did charity work all the time owned his own veterinary practice and uh he got a back injury and his son died at the mm. exact mm. same time mm-hmm. and he was on these pain medications and then you know like i said it, oh everything's going to be fine yeah. is it because it also is good for psychic pain yeah. psychological pain yep. and um i mean these are the same same pain mechanisms are happening in the brain um and and then he's a veterinarian and can prescribe himself this and then and then the that was one of the things that the family was worried about. And this is the person who never uh, would think about doing a crime or whatever, but they were so worried after, you know, 
spending eighty thousand dollars on rehab and yeah. even uh, I think uh, well he eventually lost his business they they were worried that if doctors would stop giving him stuff that he would go out on the street and oh yeah heroin or whatever yeah. else I mean well and it, his addiction it is and particularly with drugs like this it creates a very significant physiological dependence and so what you find with many heroin users for instance is is if they if they kind of meet the criteria of addiction they're not really taking for pleasure so much anymore as as to just keep the withdrawal symptoms at bay because the withdrawal symptoms are so significant so terrible and that so that's just the situation they're in they're, they're mainly trying to keep the withdrawal symptoms at bay and i think you see similar things with with pain medication people who are using that in a chronic way as well and as far as I think you asked about programs or other things that are out there. I think doctors, because there's been this pushback on what was seen as um, doctors being too quick to prescribe potent pain medications to to anyone who complained of pain. So you go in, you say, "Gosh, my back really hurts," and then you leave with uh, a prescription for for you know 100 oxycotton. Yeah, I think there has been a shift away from that. Doctors have become much more leery of um, of just kind of giving anyone pain medication that asks for it. Um, I, I saw several doctors uh, throughout my whole ordeal. Yeah. And um, some of them were easier or a mm-hmm. little more lenient with what they were prescribing than others. But I wouldn't say it was necessarily easy yeah. to get. The, uh, yeah. They, I thought that every doctor that I saw was relatively cautious yep. I, I i will say but yeah and i think and that was when you were presenting with broken feet yeah yes yeah, so right <laughs> that's a condition that's kind of hard to uh hard to fake as opposed to something like back pain or something like that right. where you know you can't necessarily find a specific kind of marker on the body that says yeah this is this is where the pain is it's more just a subjective articulation so on that on that side i think doctors have become a bit more cautious the um, pharmaceutical companies themselves have also kind of dialed back the amount of uh, medication that's in each individual pill. So there used to be um, extremely high dose levels in each pill. And, and once all these problems started showing up, uh, then they started to remove some of those from the market. And I know um, that they continue to try to find what I think they see as the holy grail of, of uh, prescription pain medications, which is something that cannot be abused and is not addictive. Mm-hmm. Um, so they continue to reformulate things, try to make them more difficult to crush. You know, time release mechanisms, they continue to toy with those. So there's a lot of efforts going on that side, um, which which are probably helping, but again, also seem to be fueling some of the heroin problem as well Mm. yeah i i'm very lucky that i didn't really experience a whole lot of withdrawal i I mean and i i also tried to not take pills every day or on a regular basis i i tried to mix it up and wait wait for uh worse days or sometimes just uh, like every every like wednesday or something like that i'd be like just just to give your mind a break from managing this this pain you'll yeah. just do and and i did 
still, I would notice if I, say I took them for like a week straight and then I'd stop mm -hmm. abruptly. Um, I would definitely be antsy and irritable, yeah. irritable more than anything. Like yeah. I could snap on a person mm. really easily. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, but, but I, I never, fortunately, I never got the opportunity to experience what like true, uh, that like true withdrawal that yeah. some people have to yeah. go through. But, yeah. um, it, it, what, what is I guess I'm going to jump around here. What what, sure. what is um what is methadone? Methadone? Yeah, yeah. When, when is that is that just for meth withdrawal or is that something for heroin? Is that No, it is it is it it is for it's basically a, a substitution based therapy. So for someone who has a heroin addiction, you can take methadone and it will um keep you from experiencing the withdrawal symptoms okay. of heroin. And so so it really has no relationship to methamphetamine. Yeah, yeah. Um it's just used in the treatment of heroin and similar addictions. I mean kind of mo most most famously in the treatment of heroin. And it's a okay. it's a substitution treatment. Good. Then we weren't jumping around. Yeah. Um is it do you know anything about the effectiveness of it or it is it can be very effective. Um, but like many treatments, we have yet to find a silver bullet treatment for addiction. Each drug is different. Each individual is different. Uh, and people respond to, to treatments in, in different ways. So something that might work extremely well for one person isn't going to work at all for another person. And we know that relapse is extremely common. So on top of all that, it may take you three tries. Um, in addition to all the kind of treatment chopping, in order to really find something that works. Um, so it has been very successful for many people, um, but it's also controversial uh, because for many folks, including folks who are coming out of like the Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, they have real problems with the idea that you're just trading one drug for another. Um, and if you are, you know, whether you're dependent on heroin, whether you're dependent on methadone, in both cases, you are dependent on a drug, and that is a problem. And it indicates that you have not dealt with the deeper issue. So, so there's people who raise concerns like that. Um, on the other hand, there's folks who say, you know, you can be a functional human being on methadone in a way that you can't be on heroin. Um, methadone will allow you to do those other things in your life. I mean, just basic self-care practices that will keep you from experiencing the worst aspects of a heroin addiction. I mean, that just, you know, not taking care of yourself at the level of eating, sleep, hygiene, those kinds of things. And so being on a methadone maintenance program is preferable to um, continuing to use heroin because it just makes your addiction a bit more manageable and makes you, um, just as a person, much more functional. The other problem with methadone is that it's very difficult to, um, I mean, just politically, it's it kind of uh, methadone clinics are really difficult. Uh, it's hard to find communities that want them placed within their community. Um, they're often seen as kind of magnets of crime and right, magnets right, right. of, I mean, just, you know, by definition, 
they're there to serve drug users and people don't like the idea that this will be this magnet for drug users coming into their community yeah so there's just, usually like a park right next door to it and that park is filled with homeless people yeah and, yeah. yeah so there's a so a lot of at that level and that's really beyond the the more narrow question of is it an effective treatment that's that's just you know what are the challenges at the level right. of providing the treatment to people um yeah so let's get into uh let's get into methamphetamine um a little bit can you get into just a little bit of the history of uh amphetamines in general and and work toward kind of where we are today sure so i think it's important as you said to really look at methamphetamine with the context within the context of amphetamines more generally and amphetamines are a stimulant so they are intended to generate a particular kind of experience in general it uh, is wakefulness. Um, it often increases at attention, energy. Um, it can create euphoria, those kinds of things. And the history generally has it that it was first synthesized in the late 19th century. Um, so we've had amphetamines of one type or another for a good while now. And one of the things that I think is particularly important to appreciate is that amphetamines, including methamphetamine, have moved kind of in and out of legality over the course of their history. And not just legality, but, but kind of just uh, licit and illicit use. So you have amphetamines being used, as I mentioned earlier, in kind of mid-20th century. They were marketed as kind of energy pills. They were marketed as um, weight loss aids uh they were marketed as um kind of anti-sleep aids and and so this uh you know trucker speed is is something a term that got thrown around for a while um forms of amphetamine that and are now no longer available but but were widely used by people such as truckers who just needed to stay awake for a long period of time uh i am on uh this is uh, i just did 60 my 67th stop on this tour mm -hmm. and before chris now i have days off each week before before christmas i was in a new city every single day uh, average of four hour drive but i had some drives that were like eight hours yeah and i absolutely i i took adderall for the first time um about a year ago yeah just to see i i was just curious if it was i already knew it was bad for you basic scientists i talked to uh and i had written jokes about it yeah. and i just wanted to see the and uh i was like yep i don't like this yeah stuff. um yeah. and i i'm just speed is just not my yeah. thing at all i'm oh, a, yeah i I want to relax. Like yeah. I'm a very chill <laughs> person. Yeah. I have a yeah. lot of respect for what the non-conscious mind yep. is doing. Yep. And and uh, but I did take four um, uh, four Adderall pills I got from a friend with me on the tour, mm -hmm. and I um, I used each one of them when I had like a very eight-hour drive or whatever. And uh, I I still I didn't. I, it wasn't like, oh, this is an awful feeling. I just didn't enjoy the feeling. Yeah. But man, that eight-hour drive blew right by. Yeah. And yeah. and this was when I, you know, I'd only had three hours of sleep because yep. I had two or three shows, and then I had to wake up for to call into some radio or whatever, yep. and and just an impossible schedule. Yep. And I don't know how I could have got through 
without it. But. Yeah, and that's, I think, one of the hallmarks of the history of amphetamine, um, including, again, methamphetamine, is its use for instrumental purposes. So people definitely take meth um, and even other forms of amphetamine because it can produce enjoyable experiences. But really, more so than other drugs, you also have people using it for purely instrumental reasons or, or for a combination of, of kind of in, instrumental reasons and for enjoyment. And so, you know, staying awake um, in military context. So that's something that uh, you saw amphetamines used widely in World War II, for instance, um, on all sides of the conflict soldiers being prescribed them so they could stay awake, so they could be more focused, um, pilots in particular. And so I think the fact that these drugs are used instrumentally is really something that is significant for us to keep in mind when we think about them, whether it is you know, kind of more general amphetamine, whether it's something specific like Adderall, whether it's, it's, it's something like methamphetamine. Yeah, I, I think that's... Uh, uh, part of the risk of it because it's un unlike um un unlike a pain pill and i i think it's important to note that um when we're talking about addiction and everything that that um statistically addiction levels are are really quite low yes. uh, uh, a lot of people think of uh you know hear some of this talk and and you know it, people are like oh i better not ever if you ever take a pain pill you're immediately going to be addicted and that's just yep. not the case the, the majority of the time not that yeah. it should be taken lightly it's just that when it does happen it has a horrific effect and it, it's people. somewhat comparable i think to alcohol in that in that way i mean yeah. lots of people use it regularly i mean i've known people who essentially were doing everything they possibly could to become addicted to alcohol you know yeah, the amount yeah. that they were consuming and they just you know they graduated and then that was that right and right. and we see similar things for people who for whatever reason they can in fact take a certain drug and that's pretty much it you know they will be they will be grappling with that for the rest of their life but you're right it's not the standard experience there's i think there's a good youtube video i wouldn't know the name of it um it's uh maybe just google um monkeys drinking alcohol or something like that but but basically so so there's these there there are these monkeys in um uh there there's some resort or whatever beach resort and people have these drinks outside and there's uh, I, I forget what and maybe macaque something like that some some primate species is is around there and they'll go and steal drinks yeah. from people and drink them and they and um primatologists looked into it yeah and how much they were drinking and individual differences and they had the exact same rates mm. as humans mm. so uh, most monkeys would grab a drink once in a while and have a drink yeah some monkeys would try it once and never touch the stuff again yeah and then a small percentage of them would get insanely addicted yeah. to it and <laughs> became these lushes and drugs yeah. and fall and it's truly devastating <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah and and so when we talk about addiction i think i think the reason why addiction is so important and such a such a thing that we have to resolve is, is because of how harmful it can be for an individual and for society not that everyone's getting addicted yeah. to this stuff sure. that's a good distinction yeah. for us yep. to make Yep. And I think when you're talking about something like methamphetamine, 
for a number of reasons, it can still have really negative impacts on your body, on your mm. relationships, on your community, even you're, in the absence of, of addiction. Uh, my my dick didn't work for three days after I took Adderall for the first time. And I, uh, sorry to be crude, but <laughs> but just it. If if that does anything to deter any sure. anybody, yeah. if I can appeal to yeah. it that way, it's, yeah. it, it is uh, devastating for the libido. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Even if it doesn't cause you any other problems in life, that's one good reason to not do it. Well, getting back to the instrumental use of methamphetamine. Yeah. So one of the things that I've I've kind of discovered in the research that I've done, and other people have looked at this too, is is that there is quite often of initial entry into methamphetamine use comes through instrumental purposes, particularly in the context of, of work. Um, so where I did my research in West Virginia, it was part of the kind of regional poultry operation. And so you had people working in poultry processing facilities. And some of those folks that I interviewed, because they, they'd been maybe convicted meth dealers or something like that, um, they talked about how they would use or they had started using methamphetamine in the context of work. So let's say that your job is working the midnight shift at the poultry processing plant and you're, um, the work you're doing there is you are picking up live chickens and hanging them on this basically conveyor belt apparatus um, that is used to slaughter them. And, and you do that, you know, you go in at midnight and you, and you work all night doing that. Um, methamphetamine is a really useful drug for you in that context. On the one hand, it increases your energy and focus. Um, it also makes doing tedious, repetitive tasks like that, it makes you very good at those, much more efficient at those, and actually enjoy doing those a lot more. Um, and then on top of that, there's the euphoric aspect. So it makes a really unpleasant experience a little bit more tolerable. So you have in these kinds of work environments um, really strong incentives created uh, for people to start using. Not only can you stay awake longer at your shift, but you can also maybe pick up other shifts. And in a context where you have maybe declining wages or other things like that, um, there are it, it becomes very tempting to start using these drugs instrumentally. And of course, once you're you're using, once you're involved in the illicit economy, then you can get into actually kind of selling and and other things like that. But that was one of the things that I found in my own research, and others have found in their research that it's it's that instrumental use that is often part of the entry into methamphetamine. And it so is there a correlation um, between kind of some of these rural areas? It seems like some of these rural areas that are deter uh, that are deteriorating, where where people are, um, it, you know, say say um, the farming industry changes yeah. dramatically, and and so people are now having to find new jobs that they aren't trained mm -hmm. for, or Jobs get sent overseas yep. or aut automation. I mean, yep. there's robots do are doing uh, most of our workforce. Yet we're still expected to work 40 hours right. a week. So now people are just we're just finding stuff for people to do essentially. And so sometimes for people, the uh, jobs are getting harder, and then so that means they have to work longer yep. hours and and everything else is is it it seems like those would be the areas that are kind of the most vulnerable to. There's um, definitely some strong correlations there and that's one of the explanations for why it is that you find methamphetamine really uh, taking hold in rural communities specifically um, at the particular time that it does. Um, and so there, there has been evidence that in contexts where 
you have uh, an economy really oriented around manual labor. And in a context where, where that work is starting to shrink or diminish, you know, people start using meth to work more, to work better, to work faster. And then ultimately it becomes the work that they are doing when their other job goes away or, or they're making so much more money selling meth. Right. Um, you know, one of the aspects of the history of methamphetamine that I didn't mention that's really central here is that in the 90s, you have the Internet and the Internet enables the proliferation of methamphetamine recipes. So there is a point in time when methamphetamine was somewhat localized. Um, the West Coast in particular, in part because the recipes for making it, you, you couldn't really broadcast those that quickly. And, and many people actually kind of guarded those recipes very closely so that they would have a kind of monopoly on the drug. Well, once the Internet's out there, then you can find uh, Everyone's Walter White all the yeah, time. And, yeah, and so couple that with the fact that the ingredients you need to make it are all things that in particular in the 90s and early 2000s, before this really started getting a lot of national attention, you could just go out and buy any of these ingredients. And on top of that, some of the, so, so pseudoephedrine or pseudoephedrine, which is a, a, um, the active ingredient, ingredient in, in drugs like pseudoephed, I mean, it has a kind of decongestant function. Um, that's really the key ingredient, but some of the other ingredients, for, in, for instance, anhydrous ammonia, that is used primarily in agricultural applications. And so if you want to get access to anhydrous ammonia, you're going to find that in rural communities a lot more easily than you are in other communities. And that's oh, the case with a lot of these right. other, other drugs. So, um, oh. so finding the ingredients is easier in rural context and then making it in rural context. So you can go out in the woods or you can just kind of yeah, do this yeah. unseen a lot more easily in a rural area. Uh, you can dump the significant waste that's produced um, uh, much more easily. So there's a lot of different factors right. involved that led to meth really becoming um, a problem that, that took root and started drawing attention in rural communities. Hmm. Um, and I, I also want to make, the, because um, some people might think, well, you know, um, I'm in college, or um, I have this huge workload and a million things to do. And um, you know, like I said, I I did um, an Adderall when I had only three hours of sleep, and I just needed to drive yeah. eight hours by a. I had to do that. It was yeah. near impossible on the amount of sleep that I had. And and some people might think, well, why why not? This is a cognitive enhancer. Yeah. Um, sure. And and uh, I, I just want to make the point for people that, and, and most of my listeners already know this, that there is much more to life and much more to what the brain is doing than just these little simple tasks. And and, and meth might make you good at cleaning your house yep. or, or Adderall or whatever might make might make you, um, you know, simple, uh, good, good at doing factory work or something like that. What it will not enhance is your creativity. It will not enhance uh, your memory. It, it won't. The, these things that we talk a lot about on the program, these non-conscious processes, these great ideas that you come up with when you're not doing the task, when you're washing dishes or in the shower or driving and, and zoning out, or when you're meditating or when you take a nap or when you wake up in the middle of the night, 
yep. because you're what your non-conscious is doing is so important and so underestimated and but we just live in a culture that just doesn't understand that yeah. and and uh the, the information isn't out there and we we have this very like no you just work as hard as you can all day long and productivity is king and and the harder you work the more benefits you'll get from it yeah and um in a lot of cases that's just simply not the case you're going to ha have health issues and mm -hmm. overstress yourself you're going to miss a lot of opportunities because you're you have too much tunnel vision um and you're going to make a lot of mistakes when you're sleep deprived yeah. and you haven't given your chance uh, your your brain a chance to process some things um so i i just I just want pe want people to know, like, hey, oh, more productivity. That sounds good. There's, uh, uh, we're we're going to have to uh, have a uh, global conversation about what productivity is and how mm -hmm. beneficial um, our standards of what productivity actually yeah. are at some point. Um, yeah. But anyway, uh, could could you could you talk a little bit about um, uh, just as, as we wrap up? I I. I saw after the election, um, I, I didn't, um, I might be completely off here because I, I didn't read um, enough carefully enough and on this crazy tour, but I saw a little bit of stuff about how um, some, of, some of these areas that are the, the most affected um, by, by, um, it's basically the idea of kind of white death and white trauma. These mm. areas where in these rural kind of, you know, what were probably like wholesome communities, you know, these people think of themselves, you know, very moral or going to church every Sunday and don't think of themselves as, you know, criminals or whatever, you know, that, that's what, that's what other people do. And then they end up through a number of reasons that we've discussed um some people in their community get hooked and and meth starts spreading and and then all of a sudden there's more crime there's overdoses and there's more threats in their community and it's these areas that ended up um when they when they looked at um kind of the political landscape the, these people ended up voting the most conservatively and they ended up voting um like the most against marijuana and these sorts of things. And I, I talk a little bit about in my act that you saw last night about this openness trait mm. that is, uh, and we talk about on the, on the podcast is it's very flexible. Um, and, and it takes information from the environment. And if, if you're say sick or, or frail or old and, and you're, if you're dying, you're not going to want to go out and have a bunch of new experiences. Um, yeah. and, and, and if there's a lot of threats in your local environment, you're not going to want to go out and uh, take chances in new environments and, and you're, you're, you're just kind of, kind of holding on for, for dear life. And these, this is now, now you're hyper vigilant and looking for red flags more often. And, um, and these, these people can be kind of scared a little easier and mm -hmm. kind of want to be like we need more yes we need more law and order and uh, and seeing more kind of uh, foreigners are a threat sort of thing uh, have you 
are, are you familiar with any of, of that data at all of, of just kind of correlating um, rural addiction problems with um, with kind of political views? I, I'm not. What I can tell you that I saw, though, when I was doing my research in West Virginia over 10 years ago was that many people were trying to make sense of why it was that drugs were suddenly in their community. And I think they were grappling with this question in a context in which drugs had been presented as a uniquely urban problem and one that was um, probably particular to um, communities of color. So it was seen as kind of a black inner city problem. If you look at crack as like the uh, the drug that really symbolized the drug problem of the 1980s. Yeah. So when all of a sudden you have people living in rural America, the communities are are predominantly white, and they're trying to make sense of why do we have these problems in our community? It was very, it challenged much of what they thought about they knew what they thought they knew about their own community. Yeah, this only happens to black inner city youth is the ones that become junkies and all that. Yeah, and and so I think there's been an effort to at the level of of kind of understanding and meaning making to say, okay, well, why is this happening? And at that level, certainly I think there can be a tendency to read it as part of a broader national decline or a broader sense that you know, things are moving in the wrong direction. Um, certainly hip hop music causing <laughs> all this stuff. Well, I don't know that I necessarily encountered anything like I, that, I, I, but, but I think it was, that was one of the things that was striking to me because right. as I said before, I was looking at the methamphetamine problem in West Virginia at the community level to say, how does a community respond when this, when this kind of problem takes hold? And I should say that it's not just drugs, but they would, you know, also look at like divorce rates or, you know, lowering church attendance and other things like that that are happening within their communities. And none of those are read as positive things. And people are trying to say, well, why, why is it? How that translated into more kind of narrow political preferences, I don't know. But again, for me, looking at it as an anthropologist, I, I, one of the things I, I see is just what are the processes of meaning making that are going on around this drug? How are they making sense of it? And and certainly it was something that felt like an an aberration, um, something that shouldn't be happening in their community. Yeah, the world's a, falling was, apart, and it, it didn't used to be this way. Yeah, yeah, and and let's make it great again. Well, yeah, maybe it's <laughs> it's certainly there. I, there's, a, there's, a, there's a there's a looking back at the th way things used to be yeah, yeah, and saying, you know, we never had drug problems in the right. community before. Um, everyone went to church. No one got divorced. I mean, and there's lots of reasons why all those things were the case to the extent that that's true. But yeah, that, I mean, all of those factors played into how people were trying to make sense of the influx of methamphetamine um, in their, in their community. Yeah, I and I, I try to not make this a political podcast at all. I don't mean to put you on the spot. Sure. I, I'm just general curiosities that yeah. I have that yeah. on my mind a lot. Yeah. Um. But as we're um as we're wrapping up, um, can you just 
this is going to be a big question yeah. and you can answer as much of it as you want to and uh, take as little or as much time as you want. <laughs> Some things moving forward. What, mm-hmm. what would you like to see mm. um, as, as far as policy treatment and anything that really strikes out to you that you think that could make a difference? Yeah. Um, well, I can tell you that a lot of the effort right now, and this is this is everywhere from finding better treatment op- options for people struggling with heroin and, and methamphetamine to the the efforts to further legalize marijuana, um, are to move away from a purely prohibitionist approach to say, you know, the gold standard is no one doing any drugs try to move away from that orientation, which has really been the guiding orientation for um, certainly since kind of Nixon era war on drugs on, but but I think it even has a deeper history than that. Mm -hmm. To move away from that orientation and to move towards a conversation, many people use the language of harm reduction, to, to basically say, you know, no one using drugs is not an attainable goal. I mean, we, we've tried prohibition, it wasn't successful. In, in fully eliminating drug use. We need to just acknowledge that a certain percentage of people are always going to use drugs no matter how difficult it is to access them. And we need to start rethinking policy around how do we reduce the harm that those drugs pose to individuals who are going to use them? How do we reduce the harm um, that are posed to communities? I mean, thinking in terms of harm reduction is where a lot of, I see the conversation moving these um, monkeys are going to get their hands on the drinks and yeah. there's going to be 5% of them that uh, really ruins their lives. Yeah. And how do we get them treatment and education? And, and not just at that level, but at the level of the kind of global circulation of drugs. I mean, the, the, the drug related violence that's in place in so many yeah. communities around the world. I mean, it, I think that itself is, is a really pressing question that, that says, you know, how do you deal with the illegal drug market in a way that reduces the kind of violence that people are exposed to throughout the world um, as, as you have groups vying for that, that market? And so, again, I think where I see a lot of the conversation moving, and we're at an interesting point right now where I think people are less invested in a hardline war on drugs than they used to be. I mean, in, in the 80s, we were having presidential candidates debate whether there should be a death penalty for drug dealers or not. And I don't think we're there anymore. Yeah. I think people's concerns have shifted. Um, and I while they might not be embracing the idea of, let's say, full drug legalization, um, at the same time, they don't wake up in the morning and say, you know, we really need to get a handle on this cocaine situation or anything like that. Um, so I think we're at a moment where there could actually be some shifts that take place. And I think moving again towards trying to reduce the harms for everyone involved that, that come from drugs and not, not basically making it a, you know, drugs cause no harm versus drugs will ruin the lives of anyone that sees them. Trying to get out of that binary, but saying, you know, look, drugs do different things. Um, there are better and worse ways to use them. Um, policies can shape, they can either exacerbate or minimize the, the kind of harm or the degree of harm that these drugs may cause. 
and starting to think in those terms um, could be a good step in the right direction. Yeah, I could see it because is Dare still a thing? Do they still have? I, I think it's leaving most yes. schools aren't aren't practicing it or with it's, the same frequency as they. I've used not to. looked at it recently. I I think it's it it's different in different places, mm -hmm. and I know Dare has taken tried to update its approach mm. a little bit. Um, but yeah, I mean, well, even education in schools, which is, I think maybe where you're going with that. I, How do you present the issue of drugs in schools? I is, think that getting away from, um, where, where now we have the data to mm -hmm. show that, um, like what they're doing with sexual education in, mm. in most places, mm -hmm. we have the data. Yes. This abstinence training does not work mm. it's not effective and now mm -hmm. people are having sex without condoms sure. now they're getting diseases and, and having unwanted pregnancies mm -hmm. i think we could have a similar approach uh, yep. to drugs abstinence training mm -hmm. is not going especially i mean it, telling teenagers to not do drugs is probably gonna make if it's someone like me yeah. It's going to make them want to do it that much more. Well, and and I think one of the things that's happened around, say, um, marijuana, is that the the case for prohibition has become increasingly difficult to sustain, and the rhetoric around the harmfulness of 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 marijuana has become seen as so at odds with what pretty much anyone knows about marijuana. So. And even going back to kind of the reefer madness era where, you know, marijuana makes you violent and want to kill people and that kind of thing. I mean, that that just is is there's no evidence of that. I mean, even people who Guys, are not. If you pro... haven't seen reefer madness, <laughs> please watch it. Yeah, it's a it's a classic. Um, so I think and and that unfortunately delegitimizes a lot of the other efforts that the government is making because it's saying, well, yeah. you were so wrong about marijuana. Right. Why should I trust you about any of these other mm. things? And I mean, heroin is a much more serious drug than marijuana is, and 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 the the risks risks associated with heroin are much greater than with a drug like marijuana. And so I think it's important to have solid information out there about I mean the the real risks of overdose mm. that heroin poses to people. And if if you don't have a sense of what of of how serious that is then you don't necessarily go in um, to kind of, if you encounter that drug, you don't have a sense of like, I have reasonable information and I'm going to choose not to do this because I have no idea where this came from. And I know that, that, that the risk of overdose is extremely high. And so I'm going to choose not to do that, not because of broader scare tactics or anything like that. Right. Just kind of a, 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 I've seen a the pharmacological numbers. profile of what this drug is and does. Yeah, just getting solid information mm -hmm. to people that people can trust. Because I, I, I do think that is more, if there is like a gateway drug kind of effect, it is just simply that then people try marijuana and go like, oh, this isn't as scary as sure. and dangerous as yeah. my parents or whatever told me that it was. And, yeah. and then well, what else have they been lying about? So, yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. As always, I have my guest plug a charity of their choice. What Will, what did you have in mind? So I'd like to draw attention to the organization Lutheran Services in Iowa. This is an organization that really has no connection to the kind of work that I'm doing around That's drugs totally or anything okay. like that. But it does have a connection to the work that I do in the classroom and as, as an instructor. This past semester, um, I partnered in my 
intro to law, politics, and society class with Lutheran Services in Iowa, we did a, an experiential learning activity around uh, the refugee experience in Des Moines and in Iowa more generally. My students work directly with the refugee populations that are served by this organization, and they are one of the big service providers um, for refugees in the area. They work with other populations too, but we, we focus specifically on refugees. They help them with citizenship class, with um, kind of basic aspects of moving from one country, particularly one country um, that, that you are fleeing and coming to a new country, coming to the U.S. and just having to learn what it means to live and work in this country. Well, um, thank you so much, uh, Will Garriott, for coming on the show. And this was a fantastic conversation. Um, and I, uh, I look forward to, uh, to reading your book. I, I uh, would encourage all of you guys to check out Policing Methamphetamine. We'll have uh, links and everything on the Here We Are podcast.com website. And as always, uh, thank you all for being such uh, lovely, inquisitive people. And we will talk to you next week. Guys, more and more great news, both with the podcast and with uh, my stand-up. One, my tour, A Good Trip. I'm going to extend it. I'm, I'm about 85 cities. I've been adding a few dates here and there. Um, filled in some in Florida. Might add some more in Florida, but I'm going to extend it to 100 cities. Um, at least I plan to. I'm going to see if I can pull it off. I'm having so much fun doing it, and um, people are... I I knew it was going to do well. I had no idea it was going to do this well. Um, people uh, absolutely love it. And so I'm trying to go and hit some cities that I missed and go back so, to some different locations and some other cities um, that were sold out, like Denver I already lined up and um, Boulder I'm lining up. But anyway, the podcast live, like I've been talking about, I'm I'm now up to three gigs booked and I, I just haven't, I'm just getting started. I haven't really had time to do much more than that. It was as, as far as the, um, as busy as the tour has been, but, uh, this Saturday, which is January 14th, I'm in Minneapolis at Sisyphus Brewery at three. We're going to be doing an episode, um, about new year's resolutions and, um, talking about, uh, have some, some experts on self-regulation and impulse control, that sort of thing. And, and then I booked for February 16th in Palm, um, in Palm Harbor, Florida. I'm, I'm going to uh, be doing an episode. I haven't booked the guests yet. I just booked the show um, just now. And, uh, but, but I'm thinking because it's just after Valentine's Day, I think we'll do one about mating. And then in, um, in March, in Boulder, I'm doing one March 8th. Um, I'll, I'll try to get all this info to you really soon and have it on the website and everything. But we're going to be doing um, Adam Bradley and I and I think another guest, uh, I believe, old Peter McGraw, uh, who's been on the show a couple times, humor researcher, is going to be on as well. Uh, Adam Adam Bradley, you may remember, he did the um, wrote all of the books about rap and talking about hip hop 
as poetry one of my favorite guests of last year and we uh are putting together uh, a special show it might be a little bit different than regular here we are episode as well we're still uh planning that out um but got all those confirmed and and my website shanemoss.com uh ramin nazer just updated it a little bit and um so so now you can go on and at the home page there's there's the tour and then i also have a banner for the here we are podcast live which you can click on i as of recording this right now i haven't updated it i don't have any dates on there um i'm just sorting out ticket links and figuring out i i just um it's time consuming but I I will uh, I will get all of that information up there soon, and that will be a good resource. I'll I'll put something on the Here We Are Podcast dot com website as well with the tour, and um, and uh, so I'm I'm gonna be making some updates. So please visit both the sites, check them out, and um, man, I am so excited uh, for for 2017 not all aspects of it but i'm excited for uh touring and and getting to meet more of you out at live shows uh i think it's going to be a blast so um please keep up with me and those of you that listen all the way to the end as always you are my absolute favorites um by the way you come to a live show and you tell me that you're one of my favorites and you get uh two free hugs uh usually most people just get one uh one free hug you get two um thank you guys so much you're wonderful Hello, I'm Dave Ross. Hey, and I'm Hampton Yunt. And we host Suicide Buddies on Starburns Audio. That's right. It's a podcast about suicide, but not to make light of it. We actually talk about suicidal thoughts, depression, kind of with a sense of levity that Dave and I have with each other. He's my best friend. Come on. Yeah, we're buddies. (laughs) Suicide Buddies. (laughs) That's the title. One of our favorite episodes that we've recorded so far is about this guy, Jan Pataki, who was a Polish aristocrat in the 19th century, Mm -hmm. and he, uh, one of the reasons it's possible that he killed himself (laughs) is that he thought he was a werewolf oh check out a clip it also makes me think like we were talking about in the norway uh black metal episode how like just the culture of your surroundings can affect you like he's in a castle in poland he's like i mean if you lived in a castle in poland and no one knew anything about anything you might be like i'm a bat i'm probably a bat That's like literally what happened to Batman. <laughs> he literally is in his mansion. He's like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm, I'm a, a bat. bat. I'm a bat. I'm a, I'm a bat. bat. I'm a, I'm I'm a bat. bat that helps people. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a bat that helps people. I'm a, I'm a rich... I don't know what you want from me. And, uh, my, and my, my girlfriend, she's a cat. She's a cat. My she, girlfriend's she, a cat. She steals things. She's a woman who steals things. She's a cat. I'm a bat. I'm a bat. I help people. She's a cat. We fight a penguin. My. Uh, my... <laughs> Ha <laughs> ha